Oh, hey, what's up? You're tuned into From the Ground Up, the podcast where culinary entrepreneurs share their stories. I'm your host, Danielle Berg. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was recorded remotely, so please excuse any audio issues. On today's show, I'm talking to Tavel Bristol-Joseph. He's the partner and pastry chef of many incredible restaurants in Austin, including Emmer and Rye, Hestia, Kali Mocho, Henbit, and TLV. Tavel received the Star Chef's Rising Star Award in 2017, and this year he was named one of Food & Wine Magazine's Best New Chefs of 2020. So welcome, Tavel. I'm thrilled to have you on. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm honored and to, you know, to be uh, chosen to speak on any platform. So I'm, I'm blessed and, and thank you for having me. Yeah. It's your day off, right? Absolutely. What did you do on your day off? Honestly, I, I haven't done much other than I, I had a few... Uh, interviews with some magazine people and played with the dog a little bit. That's it. Look at you. Interviews with magazines and stuff. Very casual. A very casual day off. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, um, you know, it's normal now. It's it, Before it wasn't. It was this weird thing. Now it's like I, I, I'm finding myself doing this stuff a little bit more frequent, but not, not, in, a, not in a stressful way. It's, it's very, uh, it's actually peaceful to have a conversation about current situations or what we would like to see in the future. Like, I think it's like therapy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's important to have people like you speak up and I'm happy that you're on from the ground up. So what kind of dog do you have? I didn't yeah. know you had a dog. Oh, yeah. I got a uh, old English bulldog. Uh, his name is Gus Gus. And I have a Pitbull Pug mix. Uh, her name is Brooklyn. Oh, um, so cute. I have a pug. Oh, really? Oh, that's what's up. They're cool dogs, man. Yeah. So let's start from the beginning. I mean, you have such a cool story. And obviously, before our interview, I've just done a lot of research on you and read tons of different articles. But I want to start from the ground up. So when did you begin your culinary journey and kind of how did you get started in this industry? I've, I was born in South America, Georgetown, Guyana. And there in high school, your last two years, you kind of pick a uh, trade class per se. So what it does is because there's not many colleges uh, available, there were like two colleges in Guyana at the time. And from high school, if you didn't have enough money to afford going to college, you now are forced to be in the workforce. So what the government did was in your last two years of high school, they kind of prepare you. So they put you in classes to prepare you for the workforce. So you will go into classes like technical drawing, which would prepare you to be a uh, contractor or uh, you build furniture, or a farmer or something of that nature. Um, they had uh, the communication classes, so they were 
I would prepare you to be like an accountant and filing papers and stuff like that. And then there were home economics, which was all about basically taking care of the home and creating a menu for restaurants and stuff like that, um, which, I, which was kind of weird because at the time I'd never been to a restaurant before. So I didn't even know why I was creating a, re- a menu because I've never actually went to a restaurant and, and looked at a menu when I was living in Guyana at the time. So I did home economics in high school. And then uh, fast forward through everything, I moved to New York after I graduated high school. I was 17 at the time when I got here. And then I wanted to play basketball and, you know, do all the, all the activities that you dream about when you, when you think about coming to America, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to go to college, just like in those movies. We're going to get a ton of friends. And we're just going to party and have a great time. And uh, my mom, she was like, you know, she, we, we went to play ball. And she was like, yo, go play. I want to see you play ball. And I had a terrible game. So I came back defeated sitting on the bench. She was like, are you better than all these kids on this court? And I was like, absolutely not. She's like, well, if you're not better than all of them, then you can't go to college. You have to go straight to culinary school. I, uh, about two weeks later or so, he enrolled in a New York restaurant school. And then I uh, went to New York restaurant school, got a pastry arts degree, and then went straight into the workforce. I started at the River Cafe in Brooklyn. Then I moved to Bluefin, the W in Times Square. Then I relocated, went to Arizona for a bit, worked at a restaurant company out there, then moved back to Brooklyn for a year, worked at a friend of mine. He opened up a restaurant in the West Village called Brayburn. Worked there for about a year when I moved back and then moved back again to Arizona where I met my future business partner. We both worked for the same company and then worked in Arizona for about five, five and a half years. And then we moved to Austin six years ago, I think it's coming up on, where we opened up Emmer and Rye and all these other amazing restaurants. Wow, lots of traveling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? I got a chance to see a bunch of different perspectives. Definitely. How did you know that you wanted to study pastry in culinary school in New York? Um, well, you know, so after my mom gave me that, that nod, right? Like you're going to culinary school. I had some self-reflection too. Like, okay, what am I, what am I going to, what do I really want to do? And one thing that stuck with me that my grandmother, and also my mother had mentioned this to me before too, was if you're really good at something and you love it, that's what you meant to be in life. And never stare away from that, right? And I didn't know exactly what that meant when it was told to me years prior until it came to that moment where I truly had to figure out what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be in life. Because I'm the type of person that if I, if I commit to something um, and say, this is something I'm going to do, then that is what I'm going to do. And I was blessed enough that my mom, she was like, listen, all you have to do is go to school. Don't worry about a roof over your head. Just focus on school. After you graduate school, 
then you're going to have to worry about all the bills and everything. But for the time that you're in school, me and the rest of your family is going to take care of everything else. So all I had to do was focus on school. And that was like the first time that anyone has ever told, said that to me. So I really thought about what I was good at, what I loved, And then I realized that bacon was that thing that I actually loved because I had a sweet tooth. And I was good, in, I was good enough at it because I was doing it in school and I was having fun doing it. Uh, so with those two things, knowing that you have the security and the push to not fail and also realizing that this is something that I was good at. And if I'm going to make a life for myself in this industry, this would be it. It just, those two things just combined that, that just gave me the energy to pursue it. And that's such a young age to have to kind of do that and be like, okay, I'm deciding my future right now. And this is what I'm going to pursue. And I'm just going to go a hundred percent at it. So, yeah. I mean, that's cool. Did you, did you grow up baking? Uh, I, I didn't grow up baking. I grew up, I grew up really poor. You know, my, my father passed away when I was about seven years old. So that kind of led me to be raised by family members. And my mom, she had left Guyana to come to America to pursue a better life for us. And due to visa restrictions and stuff like that, like she wasn't able to come back. So I was, you know, forced to live with all these different family members. So Honestly, food was a scarce thing in our house. You know what I mean? So there wasn't no there wasn't no time to practice. It wasn't like and when my you know, my grandmother cooked when we were at school. So we came home, we used to have one meal a day, you know what I mean? So you would get up in the morning, you would drink some tea, go to school, you would eat the government biscuits and powder milk. I would also sneak some in my bag so I can have a snack just before I get home. And then we have one meal when you get home and you eat that, drink some water, you eat some fruit from a tree if you find one or if the tree is fruiting or whatever it is. And then you go to bed and you do that every day. So there was no chance or opportunity to play around. And I didn't have that lifestyle. When I moved in with one of my aunts in my last years of high school, uh, she used to bake for the Sunday school. And that's when I started to be a little bit more involved. But that was around the age of like 15 because I used to play basketball and stay out late. So my punishment was to help her bake for the Sunday school. So that's when I actually started. But it's weird because as much as I used to, I used to bake with her, like I was baking also to eat, right? But yeah, we would just be baking for that. So I didn't really like get into the cooking and my story is not that at all. It's more coming from a place of struggle and imagining what something would be or what something would taste like and kind of putting yourself in that place. Like That's why I create more from an emotional perspective and not a physical or objective because um, or object because I never had a chance to touch those things. So I had to think about it and dream about it and create from that dream before I was even able to taste it. That's a crazy inspiring story. And I mean, thinking about coming from a household where you only had one meal a day and you never ate out at a restaurant to now owning five restaurants of your own in Austin, what is that experience like going from 
being in that kind of household to now owning your own restaurants and serving amazing food and pastries to people out there in Texas? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, I think it's a story of hope, right? You know, I, throughout that entire time, right? Throughout the time of being or not having, I think that myself and along, I'm sure other people feel this way. Like you feel that you're better than the situation that you're in, right? I've always felt like I was better than this situation I'm in. My, my, my purpose is more powerful than this. So what that does is it creates like, it creates hope for you. Like you're, it's weird because you develop your own hope, right? You don't need motivation from someone else. If you believe that you're better than where you are, you don't need someone to tell you that. You know that already. So it drives you to constantly be thinking about the next step and constantly thinking about what you can do differently. Um, so, you know, it, I didn't intentional. This is not, I didn't write this in a book and say, I'm going to achieve this because again, I didn't have anything to look up to. I didn't have anything to mark as a reference and say, this is what I want to be. I never saw a chef and say, I wanted to be like him or her. This was all based out of desperation and the utilization of every resource that I had and making something out of it. So, whatever direction it would have taken me, I would have followed that direction and become successful in any area that I wanted to, that I could have been successful in. It was all based on what I had as my resource. Yeah, it's hustling and working hard to make it happen and make it happen for yourself. So was there a point in your career, you know, after culinary school, working at a bunch of different restaurants, working for other people, was there a moment for you when you were like, oh, owning a restaurant could be a reality for me? Or is there someone that you met that made you think that? Or is it something you had always dreamt of doing? I've never dreamt of owning my own restaurant because I think that what happens to most people when they come from poverty is that they suffer from this thing where you never feel that you're worthy or you never feel that you're good enough, right? So ownership, you never feel like you're worthy of owning anything. So you don't see it. You see yourself working for others for the rest of your life. You see yourself as a servant, not as a someone that is worthy to be served. And also when you haven't experienced it, like when I didn't experience what going to a restaurant felt like, I didn't understand or even think about that. The restaurant was a place and the kitchen was a place when I decided to like really go professionally, the kitchen was a place where the outcasts would go, right? It wasn't celebrated like it was that it, like it is now. It was now starting to kind of pick up some steam and it, it had already had some steam, but it wasn't like how it is where it is now where, you know, we're celebrities pretty much, right? It wasn't, it wasn't like that. So I found a safe place and where I can hide my flaws and my insecurities and continue to, I knew I was willing to work hard and push. I think when I made that transition to wanting to own is when I went to, so two, two instances made me 
uh, with, made me wanted to ha- want more. I went to this restaurant in New York City at the time. It was a dessert bar. It was called Room for Dessert. And uh, I didn't know much about the chef at the time or anything. It's a famous chef right now. Um, but I, I went in there and I sat down and it was a bar and it had just like three people behind it. And they were just making desserts. You had, you had like six desserts to choose from and you would choose them and they were just like, had these different textures and flavors and it was so interesting to me and i was like wow like and it's just a bar and they were serving that and dessert wines and i was just like man this is so cool like i would love to own something like this that was a thought and i think the next time when i actually i should say the next time when i felt that it was actually a reality is when i met my business partner and we were talking and just Kevin uh, Fink, who's my business partner, when I met him that, and we started talking about what it, what it is to be an owner of a restaurant and the responsibility that it comes with and the work that you put into it and what you get out of it. And then I saw things a little bit more different because it was all the things that I wanted. I wanted to be responsible for people. I wanted to inspire people. I wanted to create a foundation that people can learn and grow from. And I, you, you can only do so much as a chef. When you move into ownership of a restaurant, that's when you really have the platform and the ability to help and nurture people's lives in a different way. And that's what I was really excited about. So that became my new challenge. It's more on how do I influence the masses and influence people in a positive way versus just creating cool food. You know what I mean? So when did you guys make the decision to go and open up your own place? And how did you decide on Austin? So we, we decided when we were both in Arizona, actually. And it was his idea to, you know, we were looking at, he, he wanted to do a concept and was looking for a business partner. I wanted to go to new, back to New York because I was in a relationship uh, that didn't really work out. And he was looking at uh, Denver and Austin for you know, locations. And, and then he you know, approached me with a conversation of like, hey, like, how about if we go into this as partners and this and this is what the layout would be. So, you know, I thought about it. And at first it was absolutely yes, because if a friend asks me for something, the first thing I'll be like, yeah, I got you. But, you know, with this situation, it was like, yeah. And then afterwards I looked at the vision and and realized like, there's a reason why we're friends. Our visions are very similar in alignment. We go about things differently, but we still have the same goal and the same passion, right? Which is for the people and to serve. So, um, so it, then it became an easier decision to come out here and stay. And we honestly came out just to do one restaurant. We didn't realize that, and you know, we would have five restaurants in in four years, right? We didn't. That was not the goal. The goal was to come and open up one restaurant and and enjoy it, and then me probably do my pastry shop, and and you know what I mean. And that's it. So, but I think you know we've been blessed enough to get opportunities to do other things and uh we we took advantage of it and utilized all of our resources to make it happen so you mentioned 
just before that what's so important to you is building a foundation and teaching others and people and service. So what is the most rewarding part of owning a restaurant for you individually? Yeah, uh, good question. The, the most rewarding thing for myself, I would say there's so many, but on a personal perspective, the ability to help what the future looks like is very exciting for me because I view myself more as a route to a change, right? A route to a solution. So like my management style and everything, to me, I want to look at it from, I want it to turn upside down. Instead of the typical lead from the top down, I like to think about it the opposite way in which I'm the root and I'm the nutrients that is going to really help fruit the what the future of our industry is going to look like. So being able to watch uh, someone come in green, um, full of passion and excitement, whether it's the same as I had when I was in their position or even more um, than I've had to watch that that passion and that dream and help in any way, shape or form to watch that fulfill and look it through to the end and contribute to it, that is so rewarding for me and exciting because in my mind, I am already living my dream, right? Of being a restaurant owner and being able to have the ability to have you know the responsibility for so many people on our team but now to watch people become successful from that that to me is fascinating and and in the process you know preaching equality preaching strength preaching drive all of those things being able to instill that in the team as we continue to grow because it's not only about being a great chef i want to I want to also help people to be better people. And then the other part, obviously, is having a platform to have a voice, right? Yeah, if I didn't have a platform, I wouldn't have been able to have a conversation with, on, on, with you on this topic. So it's also how do you spread the word and how do you spread hope to the masses? You create a platform for yourself and continue to spread that word. Absolutely. And I think you have such an inspiring story. And I think... Beyond that, you're just a really cool person, and I like talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> you're funny. I'm all right. I'm all right. You're all right. You're all right. <laughs> so when you were working in different restaurants after you went to culinary school, did you, you were talking about the sort of like top-down structure in the restaurant. Did you experience that firsthand? And how did you kind of take those experiences and then shift them at your own restaurants? Yeah. Well, yes, 100%, right? That is the, I mean, I think that there's, it's the norm, right? It's the norm. It's a system. It's, it's how all, I've never been a fan of systems. Now, I know that I have to have systems in my business to make sure that the business functions well. But I love to challenge the status quo in a sense, right? And I love to think about things in a different angle. So, you know, yes, every restaurant I went to, it was the same system. It was, this is how it is. 
and it came from the top. And not too many people asked why. And especially in New York City, where it was like this doggy dog world, where to question your superiors, you felt, you know, scared because you didn't want to lose your job. You didn't want to get fired if anyone felt like you were challenging them. And, and a lot of times it was their own insecurities because they didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. They were just doing it because they were told that that's what you need to do. And a lot of times people just read in a book and they say, this is how it's supposed to be done because Thomas Keller did it like this or because Rene did it like this, whoever. So how I think all the time is, why is that the case? So as soon as I was able to be in a position where I had any saying in what, what the future looks like or what my food looks like, I wanted to change that. And, and I got into this business not because I wanted to just make fancy food. I got into the business because I wanted to care for people. My passion is people. Food is just the vessel in which I use to get to you. But the goal is not just to create food. The goal is to create memories, friendships, relationships. That's the goal. To better people. That's the goal. I think that your restaurants, as you mentioned, are going against the norm in a really cool way. And I think I haven't personally been to any of your restaurants, but from what I know, people are the most important part of your restaurants. So can you talk about your different restaurant concepts and what those concepts are and then kind of how you interact with your guests differently on each of those concepts? Yeah. All right. So Emma and Rai is our first restaurant, and that's like our baby, right? That is a restaurant that, you know, we wanted to instill into the community. We wanted it to be a foundation of what Austin food should taste like, what, what Texas food should taste like. So what we did was, one, we wanted to, we realized that the food system was broken, and we wanted to change the way we view ourselves in that system and how we operate in the food system. So starting out by connecting with farmers and ranchers and going to them and making them partners in a sense of what we do. It's not going and saying, hey, I want you to grow this for us. It was more on what grows well in this climate, in this uh, soil, whatever that is, that's what I want from you. Um, so it was a different perspective because most of the farmers, you know, they, the restaurants were coming to them and saying, hey, I need this and this and this. And we're coming and saying, whatever you got, you ain't got to grow anything specially for us. We will change our menu every single day. So it doesn't matter if you get 10 pounds of radishes, that's fine. We'll take it. We were able to use it. And then the other side to that was now when there are things in abundance, how do we keep it, right? It's all about sustainability. So how do we utilize to have, try to have as zero food waste as possible? So that's where we have our fermentation program. So we started fermenting, making vinegars, kombucha, dehydrating, making powders, spices, all of these things. So that whole program is all based around sustainability and how do we preserve our food and then the milling of the fresh grains, that also came from, you know, us making fresh pastas and breads. Because, again, commercial flour was so, it's mass, right? Massive. 
And a lot of people have all these health issues with commercial grain. So us being able to mill fresh grains, you get some more of those acids and, 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 and the nutrients from those grains when they're fresh milled. Like it's so much better for your body. It's better to digest. So they had all of these health benefits that was connected to eating fresh food and eating right that we wanted to explore as much as possible. So to, in simpler form, I would say, Emmer is the place where it's all, it's a great representation of what food is in Texas, where it represents 80% or actually 80 to 90% of our menu. It's all Texas grown, which is something that we are proud of and we stand on. It's all about securing our community and supporting our community. And then after Emmer, we, we, opened up Henbit, which would be like that lunch, like if Emmer and Rye was a lunch spot, something quick, fast, affordable, tastes delicious, and still supports the local community, what would that be? And then Hestia, it's more of, you know, Hestia is the new, our new baby. So that is what we want the future of food to, to be, right? So Hestia is the modern day steakhouse. Everything is live fire. And that gives you like those flavor notes where we're charring things, we're smoking things. So it's really, it's like embracing this beautiful thing called fire that we've used for centuries and being able to, to create delicate modern dishes. And, and I think that's what makes that place so special. Calimocho is our bass influence bar. So it's, you know, really focused around cocktails, but yet still have these delicious bites that you can have while you sit outside. And then uh, TLV is our Israeli street food concept, which we partnered up with our partner, Bertie, that it's just an amazing chef. And he just does an amazing job. And we were so excited uh, when we tried his food and we saw his passion and his energy. So, you know, it's, it's just something I think it was natural, just good people bonding together and being able to create a concept that can reach the masses and really showcase his talents and what he could do. And I just think it's endless in a sense. Now I want to go to all the restaurants. I wish I lived in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Well, we'll cover every meal period. You'll be fine. <laughs> Whenever you're ready. So what are you working on in terms of the sweet aspect of your restaurant that really excites you? Any new dishes you're working on or any dishes you just came up with recently? Um, it's, that, this is always a tricky question to me um, because it's, all, it's like the simplest thing, right? You can, you can easily just pick a dish out of your menu and be like, this is my favorite. But I think like for me, one thing is always is the best dish that I've ever made is the dish that I haven't made as yet. Like, I always think about that because I always want to, you know, leave room for, for the surprise. I think that there's dishes on our menu right now that's really popular. Every dish on the menu, like, I love, right? And, and I'm fortunate to be in a position where I only make what I like. I'm not, I'm not working for someone that I 
need to make food that I don't want to make. But there's dishes that are freaking blowing it out the water as far as people just being like super excited and, and happy and inspired by it. One of those dishes is our kakigori that we have right now, which is like a Japanese shaved ice. I have like a sour cherries, shaved ice, hibiscus caramel, salted cream, and toasted bran ice cream in the center of it. That dish is like just, it's refreshing. It's perfect for the weather. That's the dessert that's like you dream about when you're sitting outside and it's warm. It's, it's just, it takes you back to being a kid and just, eating a snow cone. Instead, this is a little bit more fancier version of it. So, and then the Bass Cheesecake is just something that I'm constantly working on. That was the one that got published in Food and Wine magazine. So it's just taken off. And every time I make it, I always try to make it just a touch better, just to increase flavor and burning it a little bit less or a little bit more to kind of try to find that sweet spot so I'm, I'm, and I, I'm excited doing stuff like that. So I'm, I'm never like, this is it. I'm always like, oh, let's see what we can do. Maybe we can make it better. Although other people might think uh, it's perfect. I still, you know, in the back of my mind, I kind of knew I, I know I can do it better. I saw that. I saw that article on food and wine. I guess I have to try making it. I don't know how it will turn out, but I'll keep you updated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've made it as bulletproof as possible. So you should be fine. All right. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) So something that we talked about before we had this interview, when we we were on the phone last week together, is that you're working right now to develop other people's stories with your culinary arts scholarship. So I want to hear about that. I know you've been working on it and it's kind of a work in progress, but whatever you can share about that, scholarship foundation you're working on i think it's really a cool concept yeah yeah well as you said it's a work in progress right but it started with you know this idea of wanting to first i wanted to help in help kids that are in this industry and most of the people that work with me is young kids and that is bright-eyed come into the industry from all different backgrounds. But I know when I was coming up in the industry, I didn't really see any chefs that look like me, talk like me, act like me. I didn't see any chefs that I, was, that I thought was cool, right? They all look like out of my league, unapproachable, right? So I wanted to, I've always wanted to help kids that look like me, talk like me, act like me. The other thing is that I realized that a lot of people don't know how important mentor mentorship is. It's such a valuable tool for someone that is now starting off in an industry that they don't know much about. Even if they think they know, they just don't know enough about it. So when I came to Austin and I saw like as far as minorities out here, right, black owned businesses and stuff, I just didn't see a lot of my first thought was okay, I want to do something to help Black-owned businesses, right? But then after some thought and some conversations, it it kind of turned into, wait a minute, there's not even enough Black-owned businesses. There's not even enough kids that are coming up through culinary school that even turn over to own their own business, right? A lot of times, some of them get demotivated, whether it's through 
I don't know, prejudice. They, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know those situations, but for some reason, they don't follow through with the goal and the dream to go open up their own business. And I was one of those kids. Luckily, my path worked out the way that it did. But there's a lot of people that they don't have the strength or went through the struggle that I've went through. So they 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 don't have that they don't have that built up motivation as I do. And struggle is struggle. Everybody it doesn't matter how soft like it doesn't matter. Struggle is struggle. But I but I realized that that's where the problem lies is where not enough of these kids have the motivation while they're in school. So I wanted to create this scholarship to help out kids that are going going to school that have issues, whether it's being able to buy their own, uh, being able to buy a chef knife, right? Being able to buy shoes for school or or chef jackets, to being able to buy books. Books are really expensive in culinary school. So being able to help in that way to motivate them. And not only does it come with a financial help, because I think that's the small part of it. It's more of the mentorship in which you have someone that you can call on at any point in time to help, right? That's what I want to offer to you. Because the other thing that I that I believe in, I think that too many times people focus on the dollar, right? And the weird thing is that the US dollar has no value. And I think that is one thing that has kept a lot of people back in life, right? Is that they're so focused on the dollar and not enough on the mentorship, not enough on the nutrients, the mental nutrients that you can get, right? That will that will change your perspective in life and help you to be on a path that you'll be able to create your own dollar. And it's that that saying, don't give me a dollar, show me how to make a dollar. So I I don't for me it's a it's about raising some funds, yeah. But the real the real essence of it is I know the money's gonna be there, but I wanna have the time to invest in you. And I wanna have those serious conversations. I wanna have those deep conversations about life, about your struggle, about everything, and help you to navigate through that. So that's what the Bristol Joseph Culinary Arts Scholarship is about. It's about helping financially, but being able to say, come stage at one of my restaurants when you have to do your internship. It's about me saying, hey, I'm going to call one of my friends or somebody that I know in the industry to help you get a job when you get out of this. It's being able to say, you can call me at any time of day if you need help. If you want to sit down for a meeting, we can talk about it, how you are going to be as the best you as possible. That's what I want to do for all these kids that are these minority kids that don't have that person to look up to that is looking at Bobby Flay or Emerald or 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 Ramsey and saying he don't look like me. He don't talk like me. I don't get it. I don't relate to it. Looking at someone that looks like them, talks like them and still and, and using that as a motivation to continue to go and continue to push to be better and to. To, to change this landscape of, of restaurants that we have in Austin. That's what I want to do. I can't wait to see where this foundation goes and see where your students end up in 10 years. And I'm excited for you. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm currently work, working with, uh, I'm partnering with the Austin, Greater Austin Black Chambers Commerce. I'm working with them and the ACC, which is our culinary school here. So we are all partnering together to create this scholarship and, and really put all the pieces and pull out puzzles together. Great. Once you have more information, please do share it with me. I'll make sure to share it with this podcast network so that anyone listening who's interested in supporting it can support it. Yep, yep, yep. Well, I always end my podcast with the same question, and I think I can guess kind of what genre you're going to go for because we talked about this before. (laughs) (laughs) But what's your favorite song right now? My favorite song and my favorite artist well my favorite artist is Buju Banton right it's a Jamaican dancehall reggae artist and uh, <laughs> he has this song right now says I don't know how to say it in it it says me it's it's Mina trust phone right it's kind of like he's saying he doesn't trust the phone right now it's really interesting because it's kind of like saying that you know, your phone, you have it on you and, you know, you're being tracked, you're being listened to, you're being like, there's all of these things that the phone does. As, as much of it's information that it gives you, it's also information that it takes from you. So it's just a really interesting song and it got a good beat to it too. So I, You showed me him. I like him. I'm into it. Yeah. So where can people contact you or contact your restaurants? I'm on Instagram, uh, Tavel19, where the restaurants are all, right? So we have um, Emmer and Rye, TLV, Hestia, Henbit. They're all on Instagram. So you can start following them to see what we do and how we do it. My, my personal Instagram is also about food. Just a small amount of personal, but everything is more on just, you know, cool stuff that we're working on. If someone has a direct question or comment, uh, my email address is uh, tbristol at emmerandrye.com. You know, I'm open for any suggestions or questions. And also you can message me on Instagram at any point. I'll be happy to uh, yeah respond as long as I have the time to. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know you're really busy right now and thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me on, man. It's uh, it's fun. It's really cool. One getting to know you before this call, and um, yeah, hopefully we have some more conversations in the future. Definitely.